A half a lifetime ago for me, 1996, Canadian singer Alanis Morissette had a big hit. It was a song called Ironic. And the lyrics of the refrain listed a series of supposed ironies. But the real irony of the song is that it's unclear whether the refrain included any real ironies at all. Is rain on your wedding day ironic or just bad luck? Similarly, scholars frequently tell us that the evangelist John engages in irony. There are more grounds for this, I think, than there are for thinking it ironic to have a fly land in your Chardonnay. The only possible irony there is that any fly with a real flair or sense of drama would hold out for the red wine. An example of genuine irony in John's gospel today happens when Jesus hears that Lazarus, a friend whom he loves, is ill. The naive expectation that most of us would have is that he will go and heal him before he dies. But Jesus does something unexpected, the opposite of what we would expect. In fact, he waits two more days before setting off. And furthermore, it takes him a really long time to get there because it's four days after Lazarus' death by the time he arrives. In my experience, scholars often use this word irony to describe something more like ambiguity or equivocation. They're not really the same thing. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on those two words because they've undergone a change in meaning that's important to understand. Both of these words have similar etymologies. They come from the same idea. It's a word or a phrase that can have two or more meanings. And so it's not clear which one you intend to be conveying or if you intend to convey only one and not both. Practically speaking, it is impossible to remove all ambiguities and equivocations from language. Were we able to do so, even if this were a desirable thing and possible, we would render ourselves incapable of writing or understanding things like poetry. That's ironic, because we normally think that understanding something arises from linguistic clarity, watertight syllogisms. Things mean, well, what do you mean by that word exactly? Define your term, as we used to say in college. But poetry invites us to understand in a different way. It's more akin to wisdom. It's a humble recognition that some areas of experience that we have cannot be precisely set down in words. They can only be suggested by analogy, by getting someone looking in the right direction and reflecting. Traditional biblical interpretation really depends on an awareness that words can be understood in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense, not just one way. And again, the evangelist John takes advantage of this meaning, this series of meanings in words. It's interesting to notice a a parallel development that goes on in the English-speaking lands. Uh, The connotations of these words, equivocation and ambiguity, today are almost entirely negative. The assumption is that words with more than one meaning are used to deceive or otherwise avoid reality or commitment. We often say that politicians equivocate because they don't want to come out and say what they really mean. They want to hedge their bets or they want to hide what they really intend. 
But at the same time, as we have only negative understandings of words that have more than one meaning, we no longer teach poetry to children for the most part. Poetry delights in saying more than what is literally signified by the words. And furthermore, many, and perhaps most modern persons, actually scoff at the idea of an objectively spiritual sense in the scriptures, that the scriptures mean more than they literally say. Yet it is the word of God himself who interprets the scriptures this way. For example, in today's gospel, again, he tells Martha, your brother shall rise. Now, he might mean this in three different ways. Martha guesses it one way that Lazarus is going to rise on the last day. She says, yes, I believe that. But we also know that Jesus means more than that because we know how the story ends. Lazarus is going to walk out of the grave, resuscitated. Jesus will glorify God by bringing to life Lazarus' dead and decaying body. And I'm going to suggest a third meaning, that Lazarus is going to rise spiritually or that we're intended to rise spiritually on analogy with Lazarus. Reborn as adopted sons and daughters of God. So I said that Jesus means more than the simple meaning of the resurrection on the last day. So he is inviting us to read all the scriptures in this way, to see more than one meaning. And in my experience, it's common for interpreters to assume that Jesus means only one, one meaning, and that is that he's going to raise Lazarus' body right now. Martha misunderstands him. But I don't think it's necessary to say that he means only one. And this possibly suggests that Jesus is intentionally misleading Martha in some way. So in my judgment, the evangelist John, much like Mark, the author of the second gospel, is presenting these ambiguities not to mislead us, but as a kind of test to see where we're at spiritually. How do you read it? How do you understand it? It's an indication that the life of faith goes through stages of understanding. We don't understand the faith now the way we did five years ago, and that this is good. We continue to grow and deepen the profundity of our understanding of the scriptures, of the sacraments, of who God is, of who I am, of who other people are. It's like the blind man in Mark's gospel who's not healed right away. It's not because Jesus couldn't have healed them all the way right away. He, he's looking around, seeing people and thinking they're trees. It's to indicate that this life of faith goes through several different types of healing and restoration. So the word of God, being God, is always greater than our understanding. There's no way we can understand God fully. This doesn't mean we can't understand him at all. It means we always understand partially. And we understand this by words, by words that mean more and more as we come to understand more and more. The three different meanings of the resurrection suggested by Jesus all help us to grow in our grasp of what resurrection really means. If it simply meant that Jesus can resuscitate bodies that have already begun to decay, then something would be missing, since Lazarus simply just goes back to living normal life, if you can call it normal after you've been dead for four days. But if we mean by the resurrection on the last day that our bodies will not be reconstituted along with the life restored to our souls, then Jesus' miracle shows us uh, that, no, no, the body will be restored. God will do that. He can do that. Even bodies that have lost their integrity entirely after separation from the soul can be revivified by God. 
Now, I mentioned that there is a spiritual meaning besides these two more literal meanings. The fathers of the church wanted to know what relevance the raising of Lazarus has for us now, for whom an immediate bodily resurrection is an exceedingly rare occurrence. Saints Peter and Paul seem to work this miracle in the Acts of the Apostles, as have a number of later saints, such as St. Benedict. But the rarity of this miracle of raising from the dead could be a reason just to set this gospel aside. Well, that, that's nice, but that'll happen to us someday. But today, you know, I won't expect that anybody's going to rise from the dead, so I don't have to think about it. Maybe we think about it when we lose a loved one or when we're nearing death ourselves. The gospels record two other occasions when Jesus raised persons from the dead, the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow of Nain. And the fathers of the church frequently note that the death of the soul comes about from sin, And they liken each of these three miracles to different types of death, different types of resurrection then as well. The power of Christ to restore us to life from different kinds of sins, sins of weakness, sins of malice, sins of vice. Our Lenten practices are intended to help us push back against sin in all of its forms, but they are not intended uh, for self-perfection. Our efforts often reveal to us with greater precision where we really need deliverance, where we need Jesus to say to us today, come out, and to say to the church in the form of the priests in the sacrament of reconciliation, unbind him or unbind her, right? We need Jesus to say this to us. And at the Easter vigil, we're going to signify our consent to rise again in whatever way we need it, whatever sins we've been fighting against. We will say yes to Christ's offer of healing. And hopefully through this period of Lent and through the period of Easter, we're growing to grow in our understanding of what it means to live a resurrected life, what it means to live a life that glorifies God because we've changed. And even if it was the case that Lent didn't change us very much, perhaps we know someone who really did change and we can glorify God for that. In any case, all of us together will be growing more and more in the likeness of God's Son. And I'll say if this doesn't happen... Uh, It would be more than unfortunate. It would be ironic.